Over these uh, Communion Sunday mornings, we've been looking at the letters to the seven churches, and we come this morning to the letter to the church in Pergamum, which uh, David has just read for us. You remember that the number seven is symbolic and speaks of what is perfect and complete. And so these letters we must take as being intended to the whole church in every place and in every age, as well as the particular application for which each is so clearly written. The church in worldly Ephesus that we were looking at two months ago was warned of the danger of losing its love for Jesus. You've kept your doctrine pure, fine, said Jesus, but keep your love for me fresh and fragrant. And then last month, in proud Smyrna, so loyal to the empire, Christians were praised for their loyalty, their faithfulness, in face of persecution and poverty and injustice. Pergamum, too, presented problems for a congregation of believers. It was the capital city, and as such it had its own particular ambience of culture and learning. It possessed one of the finest libraries of the ancient world. It too was a place of shrines and temples. Here too, as in Smyrna, Caesar was worshipped alongside the old pagan gods. Often the ways of worshipping them were a grand excuse for drunkenness and license and lust. Someone has described Pergamum as the lures of the ancient world. Its special god was Asclepius, who was claimed as the god of healing. His symbol was a serpent. His temples were like hospitals full of sick people looking for cures. And somehow the mark of the serpent seemed to symbolize the atmosphere of this city. Dark, satanic things were everywhere, threatening the life of the believers. Need I say to you that the powers of evil are still real and menacing in our society today. And so there is a particular relevance for us as we look at Christ's word to this church in its evil environment. And the first thing he says to them is this, be constant where you are. Be constant where you are. As in Ephesus and Smyrna, Christ praised the Christians at Pergamum for standing firm, and he urged them to keep on being loyal and faithful to him. But Jesus did this knowing full well the difficulties these Christians were up against. Verse 13. 
I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. The great altar of Zeus on the hilltop that dominated the city was said to look like a throne. But look at the rest of verse 13. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. One of the very best of their church members, a man called Antipas, had been arrested and put to death. According to tradition, he had been roasted alive. Think of that. If persecution like that were to come to this city, what would we do? Some of us might be prepared to compromise. Some of us might try to pull a few strings in order not to be noticed. Many of us would try to move off somewhere else where it was safer to be a Christian. But not so the folk in Pergamum. Listen. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. These brave Christians stayed where they were. They stuck by their Christian profession. And Jesus said to them, I know where you live. He knew what it was like for them. He knew the risks they were taking for the sake of his name. I'm sure all of us from time to time have looked in the window of a jeweler's shop and we've seen the light falling on the diamonds on display there and we've admired the colors and shades that sparkle from those diamonds. If you want to see diamonds really sparkling, you want to see them against a piece of black velvet. And in Pergamum, the sheer darkness of its evil showed up the splendor of these Christians' courage, so that we are still dazzled today by the brilliance of their loyalty to Jesus. I know where you live. Jesus knows where we live. He knows the problems we face as an inner city congregation here in Belfast. He knows about the racism, the sectarianism, the secularism, the Yob culture that is to be found all around this place at the dawn of the 21st century. And not only does he know about inner city Belfast, our risen and ascended Lord knows about the problems you face in your workplace, amongst your neighbors, perhaps in some club or society to which you belong. 
He knows about the problems you face in your home and with family life. And he knows about the problems each one of us face in the inward depths of our own souls. And his word to us this morning is, don't run away. Be constant where you are. For this is where I have put you. And this is where I want you to bear your witness for me. So first then, be constant where you are. And secondly, the ascended Christ says to the Christians at Pergamum, be careful what you tolerate. Verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Probably the teaching of these two groups of people was more or less the same. We met the Nicolaitans two months ago when we read about them being active in Ephesus. Both groups seemed to be sects that led people astray by teaching that Christians shouldn't be too strict in their outlook. Let me paraphrase it like that. Go along to the temples, folks. Have a few drinks. Join in the parties. Eat the meat they've offered up to idols. We know that idols are nothing. And if you fall for a pretty priestess and have a bit of a fling, well, that's all part of the fun. God has set us free from those old silly rules they preach down in that church. That's what they said. Very clever. Very clever indeed. Notice Jesus doesn't accuse his followers of doing these things. But he does accuse them of allowing such false teaching to go unchallenged. Think back to Ephesus for a moment. They were so determined to stamp out error that they became hard and unloving. And we all know Christians like that. But the church at Pergamum was so big-hearted and so broad-minded that anyone could have their say, and anything goes, and evil was free to slip in unchecked. I believe there's a word here for the times we're living in. If you look back to so many passages in the Old Testament, you'll discover that when Israel became too tolerant of other races and cultures 
and especially of the religions they professed. It was not too long until they began to make compromises and before long they fell into apostasy and sin and found themselves face to face with the stark judgment of God. We read about that in our Old Testament reading this morning. Nowadays we live in a world that has shrunk to tiny proportions. Here in Britain, many parts of our country today are multiracial, multicultural, multi-religious. And as a result, there are those who, for all sorts of reasons, want us to water down our Christian faith. They want to remove much of the Christian content from our teaching in schools. They want us to soft-pedal the great Christian festivals. They want to take the Christian content out of Christmas and Easter. Don't mention Jesus on your Christmas card. And they want us no longer to speak out our Christian convictions in public. Don't wear a cross in the workplace. Don't wear a Christian badge or symbol. Don't speak about your faith. I believe there are matters on which Christians have to take a principled stand. The heritage of our country and the heritage of our continent, this continent of Europe and of our Western world, is a Christian heritage and it is not up for sale. Of course, we must be loving and generous to those who come from a different race or a different culture or a different religion to our own. We must offer them the freedom of worship and respect for the things that are precious to them. We must offer them every chance to play their part in the public life of the nation. But for us, our Christian heritage is at the very foundation of the people we are and of our national life. The right to profess our faith, the right to live our faith, the right to teach and proclaim our faith is fundamental to who Christians are and what Christ has called us to be. And so, if we come across those who want to undermine the truth we profess, whether they are some fringe sect or some guru of political correctness, we need to exercise the utmost care for the message of the ascended Christ to his church all down the ages has been be careful what you tolerate, an easy attitude to what is clearly wrong, 
an easy attitude to what leads believers astray is a sin against Christ and a sin against his truth. Notice with what urgency the ascended Christ requires them to repent. Verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. God's judgment is coming, says Jesus. It will be swift and sure. It will purify the church and consume the wrongdoers. Christ will not condone what corrupts and destroys his beloved people. And so we too, awkward though it may be, embarrassing though it may be, not politically correct though it may be, we too must deal with it in our minds and in our communities and be careful what we tolerate. One final thing this letter teaches. Be certain that Christ is sufficient. Verse 17, the latter part of the verse. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Puzzled? Yes, I am too. It's a sort of secret message, isn't it? And you and I only half know the code. Think of it perhaps like this. Many of these Christians at Pergamum had refused to feast at pagan temples. Pretty radical thing to do since the whole social life of the city revolved around these places and the feasts that were held there. But there were some Christians, perhaps many Christians, who refused to feast at pagan temples. But Christ, the bread of life, has a feast prepared for them. Some of them had been given junk food by these false teachers who had tried to lead them astray. But uh, God is offering to nourish them with good and wholesome food that he himself provides. God is giving them high-protein food to equip them for their journey and their task. And as we listen to the faithful teaching of his word, and as we feed upon him by faith at his holy table, he will nourish us and strengthen us for who he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. And what about those white stones? 
Sometimes white stones were used to admit people to banquets. They were a sort of an invitation, an admission ticket. Please bring this with you and present it at the door. Or sometimes when a person was healed of an illness, they were given a stone with their name on it, a new name, to signify complete recovery and the start of a new life. Those are some of the things in the background to these words. I can't be more specific than that. But aren't there so many hints here of different strands of Christian teaching? And this much is clear, that even if at some point you or I have been led astray, even if at some point we have fallen into sin. Christ invites us to turn away from it and turn back to him. Can he really make me right? Is he able to lift me up into his fellowship again? Folks, Christ is able to cleanse you and me from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. He is able to welcome us to his banquet and to feed us and nourish us and make us strong. I know where you live. I know your address, says Christ. Thank God for a Savior who always knows where I'm at and how to get through to me and who is able to take me where he wants me to be. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for your patience with us, your wayward children. Thank you for your power that is able to forgive us and restore us. Thank you for word and bread and cup to feed us for life here and now and to prepare us for life hereafter. risen and ascended Christ, Lord of the Church. To your name be all thanksgiving and praise, now and always. Amen.